So at some point, you've either been told or told someone, you can't tell me what to do, you're not my mother. Right? From an early age, from an early age, we have to grapple with the use of authority. And even though we've all experienced authority abuse, we know that a world without authority would be a far worse experience. Kevin McAllister, from Home Alone fame, thought his life would be better without his parents. Turned out, mom and dad are somewhat helpful. Authority is necessary. Right? Authority is ultimately designed for our good. And yet questions... Questions about authority are hard. As Christians, how do we understand who has the right, outside of our mother, to tell us what to do? Right? And what are the limits? Are there limits? We know that children push back against parents and employees will struggle with the boss. Citizens will take issue with the government. When we start talking about the role of the state, it's more than just an intellectual exercise. Because the state, in its use of power, has the potential to, to touch upon the most intimate and sacred parts of our lives. So we know things can go very wrong. As history attests, lives can be devastated and destroyed. So if it's impossible, really dangerous to attempt to live without authority, how are Christians to think about the power of the state? What role should it play? What's our responsibility toward it? And to answer those questions, we have to hear how Jesus answered one of the most emotionally charged questions put to him. The question was posed to him after his, his public and, and politically significant entry into Jerusalem, what we traditionally call the, the triumphal entry. It's recorded for us by Mark in chapter 11. <clears throat> it was a time, this was during the time of the Passover. So we know that Jerusalem was, was packed with people. And we know Jesus made no effort to blend in. It was during this time that Jesus cleansed the temple. He had his most intense encounters with the religious leaders. And the result? The result was that they sought to arrest him. But the problem was that, as Mark tells us in chapter 12, just before the passage we're going to read, these religious leaders who wanted to arrest him also feared the people. Jesus seemed to have the majority on his side. So what better way to potentially turn the tide against him than to ask him a question about Rome, the hated occupying force. And their goal was to trap him. But instead, his response gives us the most empowering and freeing answer to how Christians can live lives devoted to God in any earthly kingdom. And so our passage is from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. 
For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. The question about paying taxes was crafted by two groups who had little in common, the Pharisees and the Herodians. The Pharisees wished to rid their homeland of Rome. The Herodians, on the other hand, were far more sympathetic because the Herodian dynasty was installed by Rome. So we can understand why they had a vested interest in maintaining political stability. While the Pharisees were hoping for the Messiah to come and overthrow this pagan government. And so while these, these two groups had vastly different political visions, they did share this mutual interest in getting rid of Jesus. And their question had the potential to achieve that aim. You see, from the way Jesus entered the city to his actions in the temple, everything that he did hinted at revolution, right? An uprising seemed imminent. But if you really wanted to know if Jesus was about to lead the charge against Rome, you'd want to know where he landed on the most hated tax among the Jews. The tax in question here was known as the Roman head tax or poll tax. And as one commentator explains, when this tax was instituted in AD 6, it sparked a revolt led by Judas the Galilean. And this revolt was eventually violently crushed by Rome. And it, this tax wasn't particularly burdensome. It amounted to one denarius a year, but every male non-Roman citizen had to pay it and since its inception, it had become a sort of litmus test among the Jewish people. The zealots refused to pay it. The Pharisees strongly resented it, but found a way to justify paying it. The Herodians were generally supportive. And so what the question is really aimed at is knowing whether Jesus is the revolutionary he appears to be. Right, Tim Keller captures the precise issue before Jesus. He captures his dilemma. He says, if Jesus says don't pay the tax, well, he's calling for another violent revolt and we know that won't end well for him. If he says pay the tax, the hope for revolution will go out the window and Jesus will be left looking like a fraud. So notice Jesus is not caught off guard by their duplicity. He understood their strategy. It was well-designed, but failed. And whenever Jesus was posed a question meant to trip him up, which was often, 
he always used it to teach something about himself, about how we relate to him. So for example, when Jesus was questioned about why he, why he ate with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus' answer does far more than just explain his eating habits. Right? He used that question to give his mission statement. Those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus' answer in verse 17 does answer the question before him, but it does so in a way that goes far beyond it. The implications reach beyond the immediate context. The answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God, introduces the way that Jesus' followers are to forever think about the state. And the state, according to Jesus' answer, is fundamentally limited, but not illegitimate. So those are the two points we'll focus on. And we'll start by looking at how Jesus' answer shows us that the state is not illegitimate. We can see it in the first half of Jesus' answer. He recognizes the legitimacy of the Roman government. Caesar is owed owed the tax. And what's shocking is that Jesus knew far better than any of us that the Roman government, it was corrupt, it was immoral, it was blasphemous, it was idolatrous, it was abusive, it was tyrannical. And yet he says, give Caesar what's his. And he wouldn't say that if Rome was an illegitimate authority. And so what makes a government like Rome legitimate? Its army Maybe Rome had a slim 51% majority. Well, when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate demanded that Jesus answer him because as he believed, he had the authority to release him or crucify him. Do you remember Jesus' response? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. So where did Pilate's authority come from? Not from the people, not from the army. It came from God. Pilate, as strange as it sounds, was God's appointed servant. He was standing before Jesus because God placed him there. It's shocking, isn't it, that the government that ordered the execution of the Son of God was given its authority by God. It did what was evil in God's sight. Nevertheless, it was there by God's mysterious providence. Pilate, like all those placed in any position of authority, was there to govern as God's servant. All authority exists for that purpose. That's why we can say in its nature, authority is a good thing. King David, we know, was an imperfect king. But at the end of his life, he said, he said, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, 
He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. See, authority, authority is broadly distributed by God for the good of others. Parents have authority over their children for their good. Christ gives his church elders for the benefit of the flock. And government is given for the common good. But Pilate demonstrates how authority can be twisted, how it can be twisted because of sin. He used what was given to him by God to do the unthinkable, to do what was truly irrational. He used that authority, that place that he was given to reject God. Governments may or may not use their authority in God-honoring ways. Evil, instead of being punished, can be promoted. What's moral can be ruled illegal. But still, all authority traces back to the living God. Look at Romans 13. Paul, fully aware of what the Roman government was, he echoed Jesus' teaching. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Jesus and Paul knew full well that Rome's way of governing was not, it was not a perfect expression of the holy and loving will of God. And yet both men, yet both men tell us to pay our taxes and submit to the governing authorities. The Roman government was not God's ally. And it wasn't exempt from judgment. And yet Jesus doesn't conclude Rome was illegitimate. All government, as David Ennis points out, all government provides a public good of some sort, no matter how otherwise unjust the government may be. And further, he adds, though all governments are God's servants, some are faithful, whereas others are not. And those that are faithful, some are more faithful than others. But they all, whether intentionally or not, do whatever it is that God appointed them to do. Jesus was clearly not a pawn of Caesar. He wasn't naive or uninformed about the distance between the, the Roman government and the perfect wisdom and counsel of God. He was able to affirm the legitimacy of Rome without affirming everything about Rome. Because he knew that the state still remains the servant of God. And we can affirm that without becoming morally ambiguous. To recognize the legitimacy of the governing authorities does not mean we make peace with evil by calling it good. We ought to expect that human governments will not perfectly use the authority given to them by God. Which is why we pray, as Paul instructed us, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. 
This is also why working in government is a good endeavor for Christians. We know that government plays a major role in protecting life and helping create the conditions that are necessary for prosperity and piety and moral flourishing. We pray for our leaders because whether they recognize it or not, they are in those positions to represent God. We all exercise a delegated authority. And that means that we are all accountable to the one who gives that authority. In other words, we owe, we owe God what's his. And it's that point, the second half of Jesus' answer that fundamentally limits the state. We know that on the denarius was an image of Tiberius Caesar. And there was an inscription that read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So do you see the irony? There's Jesus the Son of God, God incarnate, holding a coin that proclaims some other man, a mere mortal, as the Son of God. And yet Jesus says that Caesar is, is owed his coins. If that's what Caesar's, Caesar wants, some coin that will ultimately rust, well, go ahead. Let him have his money. See, the word translated as renders, the Greek word apodidomai, and it means to, to give up, to give back, to return. So Jesus is saying, give Caesar's image back to him. Return what bears his likeness and do the same for God. You see, the state is fundamentally limited because we are never to offer up what is not a true reflection what would not give a true representation of God. We are never to confuse the limited authority of the state with the absolute authority of God. Jesus' final words to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth, it belongs to me. And so we are never to give Caesar the worship that is due only to God. Obedience to God is never qualified, while obedience to the state is. We see this throughout, throughout Scripture. When Peter and John were told by the Sanhedrin to stop speaking about Christ, they answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. God does not lie. His speech is always true. So what must those who are made in his image do with their words? We must tell the truth, even if it comes with the cost of our lives. Resistance is necessary when we're asked, when what we're asked to offer up is against what God has revealed about himself and commanded us to do. Right? Jesus' answer wasn't permission for Caesar to do whatever he pleased. It was permission to act within God's design and no further. 
And our problem is that we've been unable to resist offering. We've been unable to resist offering up a false image of God. And we're tempted by our own desires. We keep finding new ways to disparage his image. The problem with all human governments is the same problem found in each of us. God doesn't fully receive what's his. It's the ancient problem. We want to be like God without submitting to his authority. We want to exercise power, but not within his limits. And so in all these ways, God doesn't get back what he's given to us. And the image we return looks nothing like him. See, the Pharisees and the Herodians, made in God's image, stood before the one who never lies, full of deception and hypocrisy. You see how different they looked from the one whose image that they were created in? And what's shocking is that they gave Jesus their most well-crafted trick. And what did Jesus return? What did he give back to them? He blessed them with the truth. What does Jesus do in the face of our rebellion? He does what is good. He never allowed our rebellion, our rejection of him to stop him from obeying his father. And so he goes to the cross. He puts himself in our place and receives the rebel's punishment. And he gives to God the perfect sacrifice, the full payment of our sins, the full satisfaction of God's justice against our sins. And so what, what do we owe in return? What can we strive to give? Well, whatever you do in word or deed, as Paul says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, we can begin to be restored because of Christ. It is through your submission to him that you can begin your road back to truly, to truly being like God. And that means that we can use our authority in the various spheres that we, we have it. We can use that authority according to its original design. You can use your authority to promote the truth. You can use your authority to protect life. And we can even use our authority to oppose what is evil. See, we can offer our support, our taxes. We can offer our support to the state in the name of Jesus. And we can offer our resistance when it's necessary in the very same name. 
You see, what does a good citizen look like? Well, it looks like the man who told the truth, the man who fed the hungry, who healed the sick, who ate with tax collectors and sinners, who, yes, paid his taxes, but also died at the hands of a corrupt state, all to the glory of God and for our eternal good. Jesus gave Caesar what was his, but he's given us so much more. And those that continue to defy God's authority, we can trust will receive what rebellion deserves. But to those who repent of their sins and turn in faith to, and turn to faith in Christ, they will receive his reward. We will sit with Christ at his heavenly table. We will joy in eternal life, free of taxes, but even better. It will be a, a life free of all of our sin free of all of those things that have corrupted the image that we were made in. It will be an eternal life where we reflect the glory and the truth of our Savior. So thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we do confess our need for wisdom and guidance in an imperfect world, in a world full of hard decisions. Lord, we pray for your grace. We pray that as we strive to do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will bless those efforts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.